So hey everyone and welcome to episode 19 of Just a Chat With. I'm your host Andrew Dobby. If this is your first listen, Just a Chat With is a podcast series where we talk about brand and creativity with the world's best in class. In the last episode, we sat down with Alexandra Watkins, who is the author and leading authority on brand naming. And Alexandra is the self-titled Chief Executive Boss Lady at Eat My Words, a brand naming firm that creates brand names for hundreds of clients, including Amazon, Coca-Cola, Disney, Gap, Twitter, and Xerox, to name a few. Her book, Hello, My Name is Awesome, How to Create Brand Names That Stick, was named as one of the top 10 marketing books by Inc. Magazine, and it sits proudly on my shelf as one of my all-time favorites. So go and check that out if you haven't already. We also recently had president and founder of Fantasy Interactive, David Martin. Uh, David uh, has some incredible business and career advice for creative people. Um, we had digital artist Ben Radcliffe from Unity, Design Matters podcast host and author Debbie Millman, and world-renowned designer Michael Wolfe, brand legend Marty Newmeyer, and Darlene Vogel, the actress well-known for her very first role as Spike, a member of Griff's hoverboard gang in the movie Back to the Future 2, which brings us full circle um, because today I'm very excited as we're here with none other than Kevin Pike, who is an award-winning American film special effects supervisor, below-the-line talent agent and screenwriting consultant, best known for supervising the special effects on Back to the Future. He and his company, Film Tricks Inc., were primarily responsible for the construction of the film's iconic DeLorean time machine. Kevin got his start in film doing set construction for the movie Jaws, working with special effects crew. Uh, Kevin then went on to work with several major studios for film, television, and commercials, working with directors such as Tim Burton, Wes Craven, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and Robert Zemeckis. Kevin's worked on several other iconic films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Last Starfighter, Fight Club and Jurassic Park 3. Kevin has earned nominations and awards including a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Individual Achievement and in Special Visual Effects for the Amblin Television production Earth 2 in 1995, a Clio Award for the Best special effects on a Levi's, Levi's sorry, commercial directed by Michael Bay in the year 2000. And he also received a BAFTA nomination and was considered for Oscar nomination on Back to the Future. Kevin has lectured at USC, UCLA and Columbia College Hollywood, as well as teaching special effects classes at the Academy of Art University. Additionally, Kevin has served as governor for the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences and on the executive committee for the visual effects branch for the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Easy for me to say. Kevin lives in north of Los Angeles, California, where he manages his company Film Tricks, Inc. He's a writer's consultant and a story developer for the studios and production entities, helping writers compete their scripts and advising them how to pitch their written work to producers. Kevin, that was a big mouthful. Uh, thanks so much for being here and welcome. How are you? Well, it all adds up. <laughs> um, I, I do appreciate the review. It exhausts me sometimes to hear it, but it's just a bunch of work that I put together. Uh, I appreciate the courtesy and uh, all the announcements that kind of go with it, but hard work pays off. And 
after a long life, you end up uh, picking up a few acorns along the way. Yeah, well, you've certainly had a, a, a very um, colorful career. Um, I, I suppose um, in the recent months, um, Kevin, how, how has this sort of pandemic affected your work? Um, you know, has it, has it changed anything for you? Um, how are you sort of adapting at the moment? I'm fortunate that I live kind of uh, out of the way of the city, a little alone uh, for right now. And um, I don't have to worry about too much contact with people. Uh, we have to get our mail uh, every couple of weeks. We have to go to the recycle for our trash pit. Um, and then I have to drive a bit away just for um, the groceries that I get every week. So I really am lucky that I don't have to come into a lot of contact. And uh, when I do go to town, I just take all the normal precautions. And so far, I've dodged everything. Yeah. And, and, and you do a lot of work helping people with their script writing and reviewing scripts. And are you doing that all online now? Or, you know, is, is that, you know, have you kind of moved to everything remote in that sense? Yeah, that's correct, Andrew. Yes, I do by remote. It's either Skype or Zoom or something. But every morning at 10 o'clock, I have a client around the world that, uh, chimes in and we pick up where we left off of helping them get to the end of the script from the title page where we started and uh, it's a nice creative discussion and they learn quite a bit and they like the help that i give them in the direction they should go with story structure which is mm. one of the key ingredients before you get to writing it and uh, we have a wonderful chat uh, every day and sooner or later we get to the end yeah, and so you know, on that topic of storytelling, you know, what what do you think makes a great story? You know, you've got lots of experience working with great stories and now helping shape stories with other people. Is there have you any you know tips or advice for how to structure you know an engaging story? Well, Andrew, it's it's definitely true that I learned so much by all the years now in the motion picture work, being able to. You know, in the old days, I'd sit on the smoke machine and I'd watch the script and watch the actors and learn dialogue and how it went and video village to show me camera moves and learn how to tell the bits of story. Um, then as an agent, when I started working with Below the Line Crafts, um, I started uh, everybody all the way up to camera and sound. And then I started with producers, directors and writers. And I found that I really liked the writers best. And I would go to all these pitch fests and I'd listen to everybody tell me their story. And I'd find a few that I liked that I thought I could promote well, and then try to coach them on how to finish it and give them a good ending and, and, and get a script done that I can take and then forward to the studios at the time. And it got real frustrating for me because I never felt that they finished it or they got it without me actually going word by word with them. And then I decided, you know, the best thing I could do is help writers write. And that's mm -hmm. where I just made the, dramatic switch to helping people out and the, the creativity still comes very very well and uh, the student teacher relationship is always a joy you know by teaching you get taught um, answering your question about what they really need one of the big things that I'm very strong on is the story structure you know mm -hmm. once upon a time and they lived happily ever after and in between all that you have meat and potatoes that really has to be there you have to have the antagonist and the protagonist and they have to have a goal and how to get it and what's the conflict which is the most important element yeah. and when you sort all that out into where you put the two train cars it really starts to make sense and then all the writing can happen 
Yeah, I think it's so fascinating fascinating when you start to uncover, you know, the and dissect how a great story is made. Um and, and I suppose in your career you didn't you didn't start here, you didn't start at the storytelling end. Um, you know, and I, I suppose for our listeners who 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 haven't heard of you, haven't come across you, um, can you tell us a little bit about your the beginning of your career? Um you, you got you got your 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 major start in the movie Jaws. And you know, when I was listening to all the, the films you we rhymed off at the beginning, that you know, there, there's 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 so many classics that you have been you have had a real pivotal part um in, in all of these films and 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 making them to, to be the most iconic films that they are. So, you know, can you can you tell us how, how your career began and how you got that opportunity at Jaws? Well, luck always plays a part in life. And when it comes along, you have to recognize it and you have to appreciate it, and then you have to capitalize on it. Um, often told story was I was working in Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts as a busboy in a restaurant called the Harborside. And it was Easter time. And this party of six men came in and it was kind of quiet that evening, but they were chatting it up real well and talking about, you could hear the film, you could hear the shows they were talking about. And it was the usual war stories. They went out for their dinner and they happened to be the first party of the team that came to Martha's Vineyard to start on Jaws. And I recognized right away that something's going on. And when I bust up, there was a valise of attache underneath the table that I returned out to them in the parking lot. And they were very excited to get that. The art director, Joseph Alves, was thrilled. He said, you've saved my life. Do you know what's in there? And I said, no. He says, well, in there, there's storyboards. When you make a movie, you make cartoons of everything you're going to do. And I said, are you making a movie? And he said, yes, I am. And I said, well, what's it about? And he said, it's about a shark that's going to eat your whole island. And that was my introduction to the Jaws log line. <laughs> and about three days later, they got all set up. And there was a crew, about 12 of us that started. And the orca was already in the barn. And we went to work on that. And it was just a matter of time. The sharks came to town that were unfinished when they came from Hollywood. And I got to work with some great, great people uh, in that construction. And that film made a lot of money, by the way. And having that hit in your back pocket when you come out to Hollywood is always a good calling card. I ended up working with a lot of the same people um, mm -hmm. and they in turn ended up getting some great shows after great shows. And then I got on my own and I started earning my way, learning my way. And it continued um, with minor mm -hmm. hiccups along the way. It's been pretty successful. And and what made you think, you know, obviously, I think, you know, on, on Jaws specifically, you, you painted the shark, didn't you? Is that that was the role um, that you played there. What what specifically made you think this is the this is the career for me? You, did you instantly fall in love with it? Did you know what a special effects uh, supervisor was? Did you know? Did you, did you know much about the industry? Um, no, I didn't know much about the industry, but I was a, a, a film person in my own right. I liked movies very much. I liked that storytelling. I was very involved in the creative aspects of uh, my high school at the time. I wasn't so much the sports fan, but I was mm -hmm. in the audiovisual club. I was in the camera club. I was uh, president of the drama club all four years. Um, mm -hmm. Won a little trophy for acting in the school plays and stuff like that. And so I really liked that. Um, and as I said, life changes things around. And there I was kind of down and out. And I got this gift of this show dropped in my lap and I started at $3.50 an hour. And um, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> and so we worked some overtime and then we worked Saturdays and there was some more overtime involved. And then they need somebody to help out on a special repair job uh, at the Boathouse Production Office. And 
I got to work Sundays. So in answer, when did I decide that the business was the right game for me is when I got my first check on the following Thursday and I opened it up and it was $372 net. And I said to myself, this is the business for me. And I remember <laughs> uttering those words because it was quite contrast from what I was getting being a busboy during the uh, cold spring Easter time uh, at the Harborside. Oh, fantastic. Um, so Jaws, Jaws finished. Um, where did you find your next big break? You mentioned that Jaws really helped you um, having that name and your repertoire and your CV. How did you get the, what was the next film you moved on to from there? Well, first I had to get to Hollywood. Well, I mean, that's where they make the movies and they all were very kind about it. Kid, come on out to Hollywood. You do well out there. We'd love to have you helping us out. And I said, okay, great. Uh, probably took about a month to get my act together. Came out to Los Angeles, November of 74. And of course it's wintertime now. They're not doing a lot of the TV then. There was a lot of you know, dead space, I guess. And I got busy doing paint and, on the, and wallpaper on commercials uh, just to make the wage. And sure enough, the business started to open up and I got hired to go to work at Paramount Studios. They hired me as a permit. That's the first stage before you can get in the union. And I ended up working with a lot of the same people from the Jaws team because it involves sharks. And so when I walked in, they said, come on, you're with us. And we just started making uh, two 13 foot hammerhead sharks. Um, okay. And then we made a big 26 foot sailfish for the Hemingway show called Islands in the Stream. And mm. that, um, again, lasted for a while. Um, I had to spend some time learning the craft of building the sets and what we call pounding nails. Uh, and you learn how to put sets together from the blueprints. And yeah. then we got a call saying that Steven Spielberg was going to do another movie. And he was going to do a movie about space and aliens and flying saucers called Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And the main man that I'd worked for on Jaws got that offer to supervise that movie and he hired me and was very kind to bring me on board early in my career and he put me with another gentleman that was really good with electronics taught me a lot and we were in charge of building the sign that communicates with the alien spaceship and uh, <laughs> and on and on another six months in mobile alabama uh, learned everything that they would let me do oh i can do that show me you know <laughs> and you just pick it up and uh, back to Hollywood and you get on another show and you kind of let people know you know what you're doing or you yeah. you can learn real fast and you know that luck and the talent and the drive you can get ahead yeah and, and it must be such a you know a really creative and kind of worthwhile creative role the you know the the varying different things that you do within a film there you know there's so much that, that that's involved in your job and I, I suppose I'm interested um you know when you're working on these films how much creative direction are you given to the props and the things that you build and how much is your influence and your own creative, um, you know, kind of direction, I suppose, yourself? Well, if you're working in the prop shop, it's pretty finite. They come to you with a drawing. It's a standard blueprint sketch. Of, they need six breakaway windows made and it has to be this dimension and they're going to be used over on the Riverside Drive street. And okay. And you, you know, you run all your balsa, your light wood, you get the breakaway glass set for it and everything like that. You might go to the location and remeasure, make sure everything's okay. So sometimes it's very direct. We need this made. Yeah. Okay. The, the helmet for Mork and Mindy and, and uh, 
any kind of prop that they can't go and rent or buy oftentimes comes to the prop shop. And you learn breakaway glass, breakaway sash, um, styrene, fiberglass, plastics, metals, um, welding, and construction of, uh, you know, the wood and the walls. So you learn all that. And then if you're lucky, you can get to go to the set and work with another veteran effects man. And you, you put in what you need there. It's a smoke, a fireplace, uh, wind, uh, steam, dust. All the elements really falls under the classic special mechanical effects work. And then you get pyro. You get to learn that crap. <laughs> you have to have a veteran sign for you so that you can get your license. And then after that, you can assist them legally mm-hmm. and help them do all the pyrotechnics. And then you learn that. There's a great deal there to be learned. Hmm. And, and there's something um, I think is always really nice when you look at some of the older films and, you know, um, especially when you look at films like Back to the Future, um, which obviously you're a big part in playing and, um, and you know, working on that. When you see that often things that we see on screen that we think are real life have been little, little tiny miniatures. And I think there's something so lovely about that. And especially in the same way when we look at Jaws and Jaws was a, you know, a physical thing that was built and crafted and made. And I think there's, there's, there's almost something we lose now, you know, when everything, um, you know, is visual effects and CGI. And, um, you know, do, do, do you think there's still space? And, and how much today do we still see physical um, items that are built um, in comparison to the kind of CGI stuff? Well, that's a good question, Andrew. Um, what happens is uh, we used to make things and we have to take a picture of them. And we'd hang a model spaceship in front of the blue screen. And they had a map process where they could subtract that element out and, yeah. and put in an optical printer and put that spaceship on another background. And we had an interaction with them on those levels. And, and they were the early wizards of this visual effects world. And then it became where they could put it into a monitor on the computer and then shoot that monitor and get that image. And then on and on it went. And it got to a point where, well, we, we could do that on the computer. And we'll just do it in post. And we, and they tried. Uh, I worked on a wonderful movie called Last Starfighter uh, with the late, great Ron Cobb, who just passed recently, sadly. And he was in the design side with the computer for all the flying saucers and space cars and everything on Last Starfighter. And it was a challenge. They didn't have metal finish. They didn't have ray tracing. They didn't have flotsam and jetsam. Um, There was a lot of things that made it look a bit crude, but it got better. And then it got to a big wave where we can do everything in visual effects. And it it was kind of funny to hear them say, well, we could do that and we could do that and we could do that. And they could. And it might take a little longer than they'd hoped. And it was a little harder. And so it started to come back. It made this reverse Mm. tsunami and everything got to be a better marriage between the physical effects world and the computer people world. And they turned around and started making some great movies just with this combination of the two team efforts. A director like Michael Bay, who I worked for on several commercials, he was really wonderful about keeping the physical effects up. If you look at all those cars and things that are blowing up and flying around, um, not so much computer as it was real with all those embellishments that made a wonderful marriage. And it's a pretty good handshake nowadays because it's all 
kind of sorted out that we could do that and you guys could do that. And it works very well. And it's a nice participation. Yeah, I think that's I think there's something really nice in that. I think I think when we, we when we discover digital tools, we have a tendency to go all in at first. And then we often backtrack and realize that there's something magical by by not everything being purely digital. And I think I think it's really nice to see. And I, I would love to see I would love to see more of that physical stuff because I, I do always love it when you see a behind the scenes and you go, oh my God, that was just a tiny, you know, a, a tiny model. And uh, you know, I think there's there's something much more romantic about it um, as part of the process. Um, now, one of the, the the biggest things you worked on was Back to the Future. Um, our previous guest actually was Spike, um, Darlene Vogel. Uh, you may have known her from the film. Um, she was in Biff's uh, or Griff's um, hoverboard gang. Um, but you you were um, you you built the the DeLoreans for the film. Um, is, is that right, Kevin? Our company, about uh, ten men, maybe another five on the electronics team. Uh, we built three cars. Uh, that came into my driveway as soon as they decided on using a DeLorean. And we started right in working off the sketches. I won't say blueprints, but they gave us sketches and they gave us yep. a rough idea for the feel and, and the look maybe. And gee, it would be good if it. And so it wasn't like you developed it based off a specific plan. And we yep. had a creative team that helped us out. Mike Chaffee was good with the design, what could go where. But, you know, our guys were the ones that put it on and said, this works well, this won't work well. They built all the electronic circuits and every wow. every bit of that car has got a gag in it somewhere that had to be built to help tell the story. So essentially is that we did three cars. They're a little different mm -hmm. in each of their designs. And then they became modified through the story where uh, one had a plutonium chamber, one had what we call the hook mode, and the other one had the Mr. Fusion on the back um and then that became the predominant car used in two and uh, then they had the railroad car later but uh, the ones that we made were the first three the third c car was a process car that we shot over michael's back and over the dash and we had yeah. the scarecrow come on the window that was all done on a stage so that was a process car just for that um but it's it's, it's a lovely piece of work and boy they sure do like it still today and where, where, where are those cars in the world now? Do you know who owns them or, or where they went? They're all downstairs in my garage. I have blankets on them. <laughs> really? Um, the, um, the, the hero car, the first car we made called the A car, is at the Peterson Museum in Los Angeles on Wilshire yeah. Boulevard. Uh, the B car got destroyed by the train in the third movie, the mm. Western movie. Um, the the C car that had the sand rails, excuse me, the, the sand rail car with the white wall tires, that's owned by a gentleman in uh, New England, uh, private purchase. Um, there's an, another one that was used, it's called the Oxnard car. It was down in Florida. They just took it off display. They replaced it with a new version. Um, and we have about 160 of them replicated around the world, if you can imagine that, from all mm. the countries. I can imagine. Yeah. Everybody wants to know. Everybody wants to know. How can I do this? What is this for? Do you have any of these left? How about this? Where does this go? Um, there's a handful of great builders out there that make these. And there's others that just make a specific prop and make a living selling that specific prop to fans that need it to finish their replica. It's a crazy Amazing. world. It's real. Yeah. It's really insane. Um, I like it. It's fun. It's, it's busy. It keeps me, you know, 
emails every day, but um, they're fans that uh, enjoy our good work that we did. And I'm proud to be a friend and help them out. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. And and when we when you were building it, did you realize at the time it was going to be so iconic? Um, did you have, did you have that understanding at the time? You, did you know you were something a, a part of something really amazing? I I knew that the car was a very important part of the script, and I had come from another film, this last Starfighter film, where they had another custom car builder build the car, the Star Cars, it's called by a guy named Gene Winfield. He was a custom rod builder, and they, he built that car. And then I kind of adopted it when it came to the set and they were constantly asking me to have it do things that it didn't have. It didn't have any lights on the inside. So when Robert Preston opens the door and you see him, you don't have anything on the dash. And uh, we had to build a, a tub that we could shoot later in process photography. And it, it was a little disappointing for me not to be able to give Nick Castle, the director and the company, everything that they wanted when I had nothing to do with the car. They wanted it to go faster. They wanted, you know, smoke out the exhaust elements that yeah. I probably could have taken care of if I more dovetailed into the construction. So when it came time for Back to the Future, I knew exactly what was going to happen if I didn't have some hands-on with the car. And I basically said to them, I'd like to build the car. And they weren't so sure. And I said, I want to build the car and be a part of this movie. And if I can't do the car, then I'm going to pass because I don't want to be held responsible because this car had so much story to be told. Yeah. Uh, the star car went from A to Z and that was it. But every piece of the DeLorean time machine tells something to somebody about the story and all those pieces and parts had to be there. And Stephen called up and said, bring the car up. I want to see every part of it. And I want to talk to you about all our story points in the script with Bob Z and Bob Gale. And he did. He said, what does this do? What is this? And we went through the whole thing for our dress rehearsal. And he was quite happy with it when we were done. We had we had met his his logic on, on what he needed to have. And uh, right after that, we started shooting. So I knew it was a big piece of the pie and I, I wanted to be a part of it. And we just managed to put together a great team that made a beautiful design. Bob Gale was wonderful about coming to us and saying, make sure it looks homemade. I want to see the welds. I want to see the mm. way the fittings and the screws and the holes and the mistakes. And remember, this guy made it in his garage. And so mm. that gave us a little liberty. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Um, I, and, you know, the, the I've heard you talk about the opening scene for Back to the Future. Um, you know, there, there's a scene that, you know, much like you said there, the car has to tell every part of that story that if you look at that first scene in Back to the Future, it, it almost tells the full film. And would you mind talking us through, you know, the kind of process behind that scene and, you know, what, what's involved? Because I think it's very interesting. Starting with the art department, they put together a wonderful set on stage 12. Um, Larry Paul, production designer, Todd Hollowell. And they put in all the pieces that represents Doc Brown's workshop. And Bob was very creative with what he put in there to tell story. Um, oftentimes it's easy for us to just do it through a dialogue, but this was just gonna be one camera move that starts and shows that there's clocks. That's an element of the story. And that Doc Brown had to have more than one because he was crazy and infatuated with it. And a lot of the clocks didn't work and a lot of the clocks did work, the other part. And so you needed to help pendulums move. You needed to help hands move. You needed to help bells ring and everything else that happened on the clocks from the guys behind the wall with buttons, electronics, and wires 
to tell that story. And, and then you move across and things start to happen and the alarm clock goes off and then he's not there and the coffee starts to drip and you go to TV turning on telling you another story about the Libyans and the plutonium and, and the camera goes over. And then when it comes back, it has to have the toaster. So you have a guy underneath the camera and pushing in the little smoke pellets. So, okay, pop the toast. And, and so you realize that he's not there. He's not coordinating. He's a little goofy. You've got headlines of papers that talk about the clock tower and, and famous people in history with time on their mind. And, and you go all the way across. And the final one is the dog food machine. And they said, we just want to be able to make it so that it opens a can of dog food and pours it into a dish. And I said, we'll do that in cuts. No, we're going to do that all in one shot. It's going to be all part of this whole big shot. And I said, uh, let's go to work. And so we made a dog food machine that opened a can of dog food. Um, the day before, they had a little uh, hiccup with licenses and brand assurances. And the, the dog food that we got uh, didn't fall out of the can as well as the other dog food, which that's a monkey in the wrench. And uh, <laughs> we had a guy underneath with a little blowtorch heating up the can while it was just sitting in bay in the machine. And then as soon as the camera came through, we ducked out and killed the torch. And when it was ready to turn over, it was looser and made that plop then you got to keep going we got more story because now we got michael and michael opens the door how did he get in he had a key where's the key go under the mat there's the skateboard because he's going to invent skateboards later so we have to show that he has a skateboard and then he has to step in and kick that skateboard all the way over so it goes underneath the bed and hits the plutonium box on the other wall of the set so all this magic has to happen in one fluid shot that bob designed to tell so much history about where we're going with the story. And it was brilliant in every way. And it was a cool thing to be a part of. And when you see it and you start to realize everything that's happening, it's like wonderment. This is the opening shot. And you're <laughs> just spellbound by everything that's going on. And I thought it was wonderful. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. And I've watched it multiple times. And uh, yeah, definitely a challenging shot for the first for the first one to open the movie for you guys. Um, and I suppose, is, is that one of the most challenging shots you've had to create? Um, or is there, is there, a, is there a, 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 a shot that you can kind of, that's maybe been your favorite or your, your most difficult, most challenging? Is there anything that comes to mind? Well, they're all challenging and they're all difficult. So let's just get over that fantasy, right? <laughs> You're still going to have to figure out how to get through it. But if you just go from the end of the last bit, you're going to pan over and see a giant speaker. And where is this mm -hmm. coming from? And, and this is going to be rock and roll. And we have to know that he can play guitar if he's going to invent rock and roll later in the Neptune dance sequence. So we've got a speaker. We're going to have a little speaker. We can have a little speaker. But yeah. no, I want a big speaker. Okay, <laughs> how big? We want a speaker that's like eight by eight. That's a big, you're speaking feet or inches here, right? And so we made it. And then, no, it has to have more switches. It has to have more lights. It has to have more knobs. It has to have more meters. Okay, so then we went back and did all that. Okay, and then what's going to happen is you're going to stand right in front of it and he's going to twang the guitar and it's going to be so big, it's going to blow the speaker and he's going to get blown back on his tail and the bookcase is going to fall. What? Yeah, we're going to do a shot with, okay. So on top of the speaker, we had big air movers that blast out air with a quick release and we loaded up with papers and debris and things like that to give motion. All the tables in the lab had a heavy cable that was spring loaded on a bungee cord with a pyrotechnic release that we could zap and that those wipes, those 
you don't even see them because there's so much going on. They just take everything that's on every table away. And then you have Marty in front of the speaker and he's got a guitar plugged in and he stands on a pad that later will be replaced with a stuntman. But that pad flips you back up in the air. Then we had to, after making the speaker, urethane foam, and Bob wanted to say, when it breaks, I want to see it the same color on the inside as the outside. So we had a special chemist come in and help dye the two-part foam. And then we had to score it to put in the primer cord to break it. And then we had to make like a magnet on a pneumatic plunger that has to come out too. And all of this has to be done with the shower of sparks and everything else going on and be safe for Marty. And yeah. uh, pleasantly, I was able to get him to wear his sunglasses that have become trademarked throughout. But there was a lot of coordination on that to just get all those pieces cut to stuntman dress, get them in place. Where's the safety spotters? Great stunt crew all the way through. And then we pop it and then it blows and it breaks and it flies him through the air and he lands in there. And then the bookcase comes over and then cut to put Marty in and then have him come up and fire out. Now, that was an ambitious scene, and it had a little bit of element of danger and safety uh, because he's standing right in front of the, the pop. Um, so there was a little pucker power going on when we were putting that one together. Yeah. Um, so, so I suppose um, taking a step back to your childhood, what, what, did you, what did young Kevin think he was going to be when he was older? I remember getting the usual questions. What do you want to be when you grow up? A fireman or a policeman? And... Somewhere early on, I had come up to the idea that being an actor must be really cool. And, and I remember saying that when I was in my childhood, eight, nine, 10, I, I said, oh, I'd like to be an actor. And that was like a wild jump for anybody at that time. You know, I'm not some starlet from Oklahoma going out trying to get a cameo or something, but it was just something that I thought was interesting. And I was in some high, not, uh, grade school plays, and I thought that performance part was also fun. Um, it, it, it was a, it was a something that I got attracted to very early on, and I didn't know anything was ever going to become of it. And sure enough, I ended up on Jaws, and it was the biggest yeah. film that ever happened then. And you know, I asked my boss, I said, "I want a part in the movie." He says, "You've got one. Keep working." And <laughs> and. It, it's been very beneficial. <laughs> Many a show has turned out to be positive, as you can tell by the CV. Oh, yeah. It's um, it's all there yeah. to be enjoyed. Yeah, very much so. Um, and and do you ever get to keep the props? Have you kept anything? You know, have you anything that you know of note? You know that that that's the that's interesting, or you know anything that has a good story behind it that you've just well, you've just wanted to keep a hold of? Well, I always yeah, I I, I always like to joke that I have. Uh, one of the 26 foot sharks and I have a 26 foot scout walker and I have three of the DeLoreans and I have the sign from close encounters all in my basement, but everybody knows I really don't have a basement here. Um, <laughs> but you, you know, you have, you have a job to do and you're expected to live up to those challenges. Mm -hmm. um, and taking things that aren't yours is never a part of the process. Um, you know, if, if I had a, a notebook that I wrote down every single nut, bolt and screw that I used to make a DeLorean time machine, that would be beneficial to me. But if you remember, nobody's allowed to take pictures back then. They mm -hmm. didn't have cameras. They had these little Instamatics. We used to call them with a little square flash cube. So if anybody took a picture, you say, hey, that's not allowed. You know that. 
Um, now they have phones that take pictures and they have phones that make whole movies. <laughs> so it wasn't like we had any of that history that we could document. Um, so pictures were out and parts of the car or parts of the shark or whatever, you know, there were, I don't have anything that I can say came from any of the shows that I've ever worked on. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. Um, so, so we have we have we have a lot of young creative people, Kevin, that listen to this show. And um, I suppose if if someone's listening just now and they they think I want to do what Kevin's been doing, you know, w w what advice would you give them to to get into a career doing what you've been doing to get into that, you know, visual effects, special effects world? Um, how 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 can they how can they get in there? And what's the best way to do that in today's world? Well. For sake of the vision, you could focus on whether you want to go into the visual effects world or you want to go into the mechanical effects world. That will help you focus uh, your, your bifurcation. Um, they have wonderful schools and online labs and uh, programs that you can learn on how to handle all the different applications that will help you say, I'm, I'm vested in this form of uh, visual effects studio design or something like that. And you can get that pretty much on your own. You can go to schools now that focus on that. And you can then try to poke your head in the door but where the visual effects are going on on the shows and see if you can chum up to some of the lads that are doing it and see if you can get in that way. Um, yeah. Special effects, it, it, there's no school for that. There's not special effects college 101 anywhere. You, you just have to use your talent, your drive and your good luck and try to get your foot in the door by meeting people and following up any connection that you have, anything is worth a, a talk to the, the fella about how you might be able to get in. There's an arc, a cycle to when it's busy and when it's not seasonally. So become familiar with that. But I don't have to tell you how much knowledge is on a computer. Yeah. You can learn so much about every genre and subgenre and kind of a program that you want to go. And you can become well-versed in everything and then try to get your talent that you have with you in front of the other guy and see if he'll pick you up for some reason or another. There's not really a, you know, go in this door and then start working this door in Hollywood on the physical effects side of things. It's just trying to get in when it gets busy. Yeah. I, I, Kevin, you mentioned, you mentioned the word luck quite a lot, and I'm interested to know how much you think comes from the skill that you have because you're you're clearly a very talented creative and you know the work that you've done and um, but how, how much do you think of, of your success has come from luck how much has come from skill luck is a funny factor but it's always there and it's best if you appreciate it and you watch out for it and it doesn't have to be something that you're given you can actually ask for it as part of the universe and the consciousness and if you watch for the coincidences that you get reminded of from time to time, you know, I should call that guy. Gee, I wonder it'd be good if I could go there. Um, why, why am I getting thoughts about X, Y, Z? And so I had been on Jaws and I didn't have any work. And I had a premonition that my father had sent me a check, RFD, random delivery, no box, no address to Martha's Vineyard in Egertown. And if I went to the post office, that check would be waiting there because I knew my father could understand my despair. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? Consciousness. And so I went to the post office thinking magically somebody would hand me a check for $100. And when I went up the stairs, 
and he was a construction coordinator. And he says, you're ready to go to work? I said, you bet. He says, start tomorrow, 3.15 hour, go to the boathouse, seven o'clock in the morning. Now, where did that come from, right? But I've been right. in those situations my entire life where I can reflect that. It, it was luck, but I took the action. There's the motivation. So there's the drive, right? And the talent is something that you learn how to develop. You learn your craft, you learn your skill, you hit your thumb with the hammer and you keep going forward. And you just keep amassing all of this knowledge uh, that gets really refined when you start to supervise your own shows. There's a lot of liabilities, a lot of pressure, there's a budget, there's time, there's a lot of management of people that has to be pulled off. Your crew has to dovetail into the work of all the other crews, whether it's makeup with blood, wardrobe with bullet hits, or just a thousand interactions of how to deal with people is one of the biggest talents that you have to be able to acquire or learn uh, to help you get through all this because it's really a people show all the time. It, it's very difficult to have a COVID kind of response team set up and make movies. Um, the actors don't have masks. Everybody's crowding around Video Village to see what's going on. Um, it's a very personable person mm. orientation. And if you can get along with people, you'll be a leg up on the next guy. Yeah. Yeah, and and I'm I'm interested. While we were off air, Kevin, you talked about how you meditate every day now, and you help helps with your creativity. Can you talk a little little bit about that? Sure, can. <clears throat> about five years ago, six years ago, I was having a problem with insomnia. That means I'm not getting enough sleep. Oh, I didn't sleep well last night. I know I'll sleep good tonight, and then everything will be okay. That's not how it works. If you don't get enough sleep, your mind doesn't get refreshed like it's supposed to. And you think you can go on and then, okay, when this show's over, I'm going to really take a good break. That's not healthy for you. So I started working with learning how to sleep. And I got that to a place where I started feeling better and healthier and I could do things. And as I worked through all of that, I got attracted to a book by Deepak Chopra about the spontaneous fulfillment of desire. And where did that come from? Why did that land in my lap? And I read that book and I was moved by it. And in there, it guided me towards meditation. I had done that before other places and other times when in your past life of reading. But I said, I'm going to practice this. And what I do is I meditate early afternoon and I sit there for about 40 minutes and, and I consider nothing. Mm -hmm. I just keep an empty mind and I relax and I try to go to that higher consciousness and I'm very respectful of consciousness as a way for you to get information. And in there, it'll grant you what you ask for if you just put it out and let it go. And uh, it brings your whole mind to a higher consciousness and it makes the brain healthier and all your body for that matter. And I've just become um, a candidate and it's wonderful for me. And um, I continue to investigate and read and meditate and work on lucid dreamings and higher yeah. consciousness. But, uh, you know, if, for instance, if, if you had, you had a 30,000 word vocabulary and then you died and then they cut your brain open and they look for that file cabinet, where would they find it? <laughs> it's not in you. It's not yeah. in you. It's through you. You've seen pianists play like, where is that coming from? How does he know how to do that so fast? And, and it's from the consciousness that comes through you. And if you can pay attention to it and realize it when it's coming to you, it'll help your life be better towards the goals that you want. Yeah, well, I, that feels like a very 
peaceful way to end the podcast today, uh, Kevin. So I just Great. want to take this time to thank you so much for taking the time out your day. Apologies, we had some technical difficulties before we came online, um, but we got through them. So thanks for sticking with us. Um, and thanks to everyone who's been listening. Um, if you want to support the podcast, please do rate us and write us a review. It really does help um, and makes a big difference to us. We publish a new episode on the last Monday of every month. So make sure you're subscribed if you don't want to miss out. Kevin, thank you again. Um, and we'll see you all next thank time. You. And if anybody needs to get a hold of me, I'm available. If you want to talk about your script and get some uh, guidance, I'm happy to help you. Perfect. Thank you, Kevin.